0: Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg
1: and I'm Patricia
0: and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in March in our Cosmic Diary.
1: When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then make sure to switch on the red night vision mode.
0: Several planets remain visible in the night sky over the coming month. While Neptune has dropped below the horizon, Uranus remains high in the early evening sky towards the west. While not visible to the unaided eye, to a small telescope Uranus appears as a faint blue dot due to its extreme distance in the solar system. Its blue colour comes from the large quantities of methane in its atmosphere. With only one single visit completed, a short flyby by Voyager 2 in the 1980s, Uranus remains one of the least studied planets in our solar system.
1: For more accessible planets in the night sky, Mars remains high in the southwestern sky, finally setting around 11 p.m. each night. This orange-red point of light is amongst the brightest objects in the southern sky this month and is easily visible to the unaided eye. For more of a challenge, try looking for Mercury, the closest planet to the Sun. Most easily visible in the first half of this month, it appears close to the ground in the west, no more than about 10 degrees above the horizon just after the Sun has set. Whether you intend to try and see it with your unaided eyes, a pair of binoculars, or a telescope, make certain to wait until the sun has set before starting to look for the planet. Not only will it not be visible while the sun is up, this avoids any possibility of accidentally staring into the sun.
0: More planets are visible in the early morning just before sunrise. Venus, Saturn and Jupiter are all visible in the sky around 6am over in the eastern and southeastern sky. We'll have to wait for the summer months for Saturn and Jupiter to rise early enough for an evening view. The moon this month begins in a waning crescent phase, with new moon itself occurring on the 6th. Full moon this month occurs on the 21st of March, the day after the spring equinox, the day when daylight hours start to outnumber nighttime ones. This full moon will also be the third and last supermoon of 2019, and so will appear slightly larger than the full moons throughout the rest of this year.
1: For some more distant sights this month, look no further than the constellation of Orion the Hunter. Orion is a fantastic constellation that is very recognisable and contains some of the brightest stars in the sky, but it is also a fantastic signpost for wonderful deep sky objects of all kinds. Below the three stars that make up the belt of Orion are a line of three or four faint objects. Known as his sword or his dagger, this is not purely a line of stars, but instead contains a number of nebulae. The brightest, in the middle of the sword, is the Orion Nebula. This vast cloud of hydrogen gas is a stellar nursery where new stars are being formed. One of the closest star-forming regions to Earth, and certainly the most intense nearby region, it is clearly visible as a dim smudge in a small telescope.
0: Nearby to Orion is the site of a recently finished phase of star formation. Extend the line of Orion's belt clockwise around the sky, and you'll eventually reach the Pleiades. Sometimes known as the Seven Sisters, due to how many stars are readily visible to the unaided eye, this tight-knit cluster is a set of recently formed stars no more than 100 million years old, making them very young as most stars go best viewed through a pair of binoculars a wide field of view and modest magnification will reveal dozens of stars a large stellar family that will drift apart over the course of the next few billion years
1: over orion's head and between the horns of taurus the bull is the remnant of a dead star a supernova explosion visible from the earth in the year 1054 has left behind the crab nebula just visible through a pair of binoculars The extended clouds are the outer layers of the star, blown off during its violent death, while right at the heart remains an object only 30 kilometres across, but containing one and a half times the mass of the Sun inside. This is a neutron star, the crushed core of the star and one of the densest objects in the universe.
0: And don't forget, on the 31st of March, we switch to daylight savings time in the UK, so remember to change your clocks. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome to the Cosmic News part of our podcast. Every month, Patricia and I come up with a new story each that's broken within the last month that we want to give you some more information on. Uh, and then you get the chance to vote on your favourite on our Twitter feed, at ROG Astronomers. So, Patricia, what have you got for us this month?
1: Well, for this month's podcast, I've chosen to talk about the sad. But not entirely unexpected news that the Mars exploration rover Opportunity has officially finished its mission on Mars. As you may recall, in May of last year, a dust storm started forming on Mars. And that storm wasn't spotted by any of the rovers on the surface of the planet, but was in fact spotted by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a satellite in orbit at Mars. Now, as soon as mission scientists working on the, uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter data, well, I'm just going to abbreviate that to MRO, because mm-hmm. I'll say it again a bit later, they immediately notified the scientists working with Opportunity, and those mission scientists had to put an immediate stop to all of the science work that was taking place um, with Opportunity at that point, because they needed to save power on the rover. That dust storm would mean that Opportunity would have no way of charging its batteries because it uses solar Solar panels to do so obviously this is not an ideal situation to find yourself in if you're a rover that's solar powered (laughs) and what it meant that Opportunity was basically going to have to ride out the dust storm in a low power mode which is already critical if you think of all the instrumentation on board mostly it was a Martian winter so they didn't have to worry too much about keeping those instruments really warm but You know if you do need some heat on there but you're in a low power mode it was a bit dicey of course the storm grew and by mid-june almost the entire planet was covered by the dust storm and the days grew darker and darker until the sun pretty much disappeared in the sky And if you want to get an idea of how dark it was at Opportunity's position, there's a great simulated image on the internet that shows you the progression of this dust storm and how much it built up and just how much sunlight was actually blocked out at that position. And during the storm, all the mission scientists could do was to wait For the storm to die down, and they ended up using the MRO to track the storm to monitor the entire planet to see if there was any signs at all that the storm was actually starting to diminish. Mm. And it turns out that mission scientists had rather hoped that Opportunity would be able to phone home, so to speak, about once a week or so. But from around June 10th, they heard nothing. Mm. Of course, their concerns grew that perhaps there was not enough power onboard on opportunity for it to even send any m- messages home to us um, eventually by late july last year the dust storm started to die down and scientists had hoped that now that enough some sunlight would be trickling down to those panels it would be enough to stop powering the batteries, so that opportunity could at least switch itself on and phone home and just send some message to say that it was all right but there was nothing yes and Scientists tried everything they could. They kept sending commands up to Opportunity, and this was an ongoing process. But despite their best efforts to wake Opportunity, NASA announced on February the 13th of this year that the mission was officially at an end after almost 15 years of exploring Mars. Mm. And for a rover that was originally designed to only have a mission length of 90 days, 15 years, almost 15 years, is an absolutely fantastic achievement and one that certainly deserves to be celebrated. Absolutely. And of course, if we consider just how much has happened in terms of robotic exploration of Mars since Opportunity landed on the planet, um, with new missions such as Curiosity and Insight all adding to the exploration of the planet, it's difficult to remember just how much Opportunity contributed to our understanding of Mars and the discoveries that it made. So today, in tribute to the little rover that could, <laughs> I want to talk about just a few of the really cool discoveries that Opportunity made, as well as some of the interesting things and images that the rover returned. I would love to do a full dedication to the rover, but considering the duration of our podcast, I've had to <laughs> I've had to trim it down quite substantially. And I promise... Not to get too emotional during the <laughs> podcast today, but, you know, Opportunity deserves a little moment to shine Absolutely. after its period on Mars. So we have to go all the way back to 2004, to January, when Opportunity touched down on the surface of Mars. And if you remember that far back, you may recall that both Spirit and Opportunity used the airbag system to land on mars so if we think back to curiosity using a sky crane we're thinking all the way back to when we had those little inflatable airbags and the rover bouncing along the (laughs) surface and it turned out that during that landing procedure the whole airbag system ended up rolling into a crater um, a crater called eagle crater and once the airbags had deflated and the rover woke itself up and started imaging its surroundings The immediate image that returned stunned scientists because inside this crater was an exposed line of bedrock. They were not expecting to see Hmm. any bedrock um, in the crater. Of course, they got very excited (laughs) and were quite intrigued about what might, you know, could be inside the crater, perhaps at the base of the crater. And so once the rover was off of its little landing pad, they used a microscopic imager on the rover to get some images of the surface. And they found that the surface was covered in lots and lots of tiny round things. So you may tiny recall that they were then eventually <laughs> called blueberries because right. they look like blueberries in a muffin. So you might be wondering what on earth are blueberries doing on Mars? <laughs> well, these blueberries are actually hematite spheres that formed from acidic groundwater. So herein, immediately after the landing, we have direct evidence that there was water inside this crater on Mars at some point. And to to think that that is where they started the opportunities mission from, and they immediately have evidence of water on Mm. Mars. It was a great way (laughs)
0: <laughs> to start your mission,
1: to sort of open up, turn on the camera, and be like, "Oh, lots of evidence of water, particularly inside this crater."
0: So hematite is a an iron based uh, mineral of some description, and yeah, it was it the was it the shape that told them that they had been formed by water, yeah. or was it the oxidation, or
1: so? Um, so they have seen examples of that here as well. So it was looking at these little blueberries and realizing.
0: We've so similar things before. found on Earth. Yeah. And, and if you think yeah. about
1: it, basically all of our exploration of Mars, everything that we're deducing there is based on our own understanding of geological processes yeah. here on the Earth. So it's a matter of if you've seen it there, have we seen it here? Sure. And so that was a great start to, as I said, to the mission. Now, of course, things got better from there on because in January of 2005 while Opportunity was driving along on the surface of Mars, it came across an iron meteorite on the surface of Mars. And that was the first ever meteorite ever identified on another planet. Ah. Um, About the size of a basketball, the meteorite was actually called heat shield rock because it was near the debris of Opportunity's heat Heat shield. shield, So you can sort of imagine if the heat shield had not landed where it did and may have accidentally landed... On top of the meteorite. Oh,
0: contaminated on its potential new meteorite, yes. Yes, Not but good. It's,
1: it's all right. It didn't do that. And then, um, so of course, what do you do? You aim your instrumentation um, at, at the meteorite. And based on readings from the spectrometers on board the rover, scientists determined that the meteorite was made mostly of iron and nickel. So quite a special meteorite. And it was really surprising to mission scientists because they built the rover to study Mars, not expecting to find something on Mars that didn't come from Mars. Right. So this is quite a serendipitous discovery that all of a sudden they were using the instruments on board the rover to to investigate and study something that was not from Mars and again it just shows you the importance of sending these missions out there to mars because it's part of our understanding of these things and of course here on the earth we love to find meteorites there's a great example of meteorites landing on mars another avenue for us to study so again if you were part of the design process for the rover and you're thinking about at the time all the bits that the rover was going to be exploring on mars i don't think meteorites from space would have been Top of the design list, or no. something that may well have featured when you were busy working on your rover design. No, quite. So that, as I said, is a serendipitous discovery, and it's not the only meteorite that the rovers have discovered. Curiosity itself has discovered a meteorite on Mars too. So again, opening up the possibility of looking at all of these things that we can study in Mars, and it's a note not just be things that are on Mars itself or come from Mars directly. Hmm. But as we were, Opportunity has been on Mars for such a long time and there was so much that it covered. But if we go to around about August of 2008, Opportunity began a quite long 13 mile journey from Victoria Crater, where it had been exploring, all the way to Endeavour Crater. Now, 13 miles, not that long. But it took the rover around three years (laughs) to complete that. Yes. And obviously, because along the way, it's going to be stopping and looking at interesting things. But I will point out that the rover itself had a blistering top speed of 0.14 kilometers per hour. So not the fastest rover, but still it managed to get all the way there. But sadly, when opportunity reached Endeavour Crater, we got the news that Spirit had not survived the Martian winter. So Mm. Spirit being the twin rovers, part of the Mars Exploration Rover missions, you may recall for Spirit that it got stuck in a sand pit. And the solar panels were not ideally pointed in order to charge it and enter the Martian winter. And its mission also came to an end. But Opportunity, still going strong at this point, and then it discovered veins of gypsum at Endeavour Crater hmm. and if you're wondering what gypsum is it's the stuff that plaster of Paris is made from of
0: course yeah.
1: and you may be going oh what's that exciting I don't know well it is because those gypsum veins were most likely deposited Positive. there by water, by water. flowing yep. along Endeavour Crater and um in addition to finding these veins of gypsum there they discovered clay minerals that formed in neutral ph water so eagle crater we know had acidic water here is endeavor crater which has neutral ph water and this means that of all the places that opportunity had looked at prior to that point endeavor most likely had the best conditions for ancient microbial life compared to the other regions that it had discovered before Mm. which means that endeavor crater will most likely be one of the future targets if not for a robotic mission definitely for manned exploration of mars and then we'll go there to try and look for evidence of past life on mars which is obviously one of the big reasons why we're exploring mars still Mm. today so it just shows you the stark contrast in the regions that Opportunity had a look at, but at the different things. But Opportunity itself, with everything that it discovered, it came up with possibly the best evidence that water Oops. once flowed on yeah. the surface of Mars. Obviously now, with Curiosity, we've had a lot more things. We've seen evidence of ancient riverbeds. but. Considering that Spirit and Opportunity came about just after Sojourner, if we all think back to little Sojourner rover, mm. the first generation rover on Mars, they, Spirit and Opportunity really outdid themselves in their studies of Mars. And I mean, in addition to all these discoveries, obviously opportunity itself took many memorable images, um, including those stunning images of craters where the bases had ripples of sand that looked like waves in water mm. flowing through them. We saw whirling dust devils on Mars, and you may recall that those dust devils helped solve the mystery of why the batteries kept charging back up so if you think the three-month mission lifespan for Spirit and opportunity was based because they knew there's lots of dust on mars dust would settle on the solar panels and your level of that you could charge a battery up to is going to eventually drop down to the point where you can't charge them up but all of a sudden every now and then what would happen hmm. they would see a spike in the battery charge level
0: so it was, it was being cleaned off the dust devil was actually Blowing the, the, the dust off of it the solar It was precisely
1: that, yeah. So um, those little dust devils were basically the reason that these missions kept getting extended because they would just basically <laughs> blow over the rovers, clear off the solar panels, and then you'd have, be able to charge them back up fully. So it, it's just fantastic that you have all these images and you can see all these dust devils blowing around on Mars and knowing that they were very helpful in keeping these rovers going. And of course, there was an absolutely fantastic image of the blue sunset on Mars, which um, if we compare what we're used to here on the Earth with our red sunset to see a blue sunset on Mars, it's, it's just one of those stunning images that you have to see if you haven't already seen it. And then in a really cool bit, Opportunity has also set the off-wheel driving record.
0: Yes. Yes, it has. It
1: has clocked up more than 45 kilometers on the surface of Mars, despite only being designed to at least do one kilometer. Mm. And I think that that is not bad for a little rover that initially had a three-month lifespan with a maximum of one kilometer driving and ended up almost doing 15 years on the surface of mars and breaking the the awful driving record as well which is just great so curiosity has a lot of catching up to do to reach Opportunity's yes, record.. So it does. and as i said i can't discuss everything that's happened with opportunity on mars but i do bid a farewell to opportunity and borrowing from the tweet that nasa sent out i'm going to end with rest well rover your mission is complete.
0: Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> well, it's fantastic because, as you say, opportunity provided all sorts of uh Brilliant research and science that uh, uh, we we had no idea about before, and it's it's often it's the the things that we're not expecting the rover to or the the mission or the science experiment to complete that it then does serendipitously, which are the some of the most interesting results that come back.
1: Yeah, and also rather interestingly, quite a couple of the discoveries made by Opportunity were caused because it had to change route. So there were lots of treacherous areas and with their wheels getting stuck in the sand, what would happen is the scientists would say, "Well, oh, we really don't want to drive around. They turn the rover around and all of a sudden, oh, look, we didn't realize that there was this magnificent bedrock behind us, which is actually, again, evidence that water was once there. So again, many serendipitous discoveries made by by the rover, and I think justification for the importance of continuing these missions until such time as we actually get astronauts People, out to absolutely. Mars.
0: Yeah. Well, fantastic story, Patricia. Thank you very much. Today, I have a story which as it turns out, is somewhat connected to what you've been talking about, and you'll see why a little bit later. And this is a story about going a very, very long way um, in order to find something that came from somewhere rather closer to home. Uh, What I'm talking about are the moon landings. So 16th of July this year is the 50th anniversary of um, the Apollo 11 launch, uh, with the the actual landing on the Moon being a few days later. There have to date been 12 people, 12 astronauts, that have walked on the surface of the Moon across six different missions from 1969 through to 1972. Um, But the initial landings on the Moon, they were not just important uh, technical achievements and and achievements just generally for uh, humankind. Uh, They were also had science objectives, experiments to complete while they were on the surface of the Moon. Uh, One of the more interesting ones was uh, depositing a series of reflectors on the surface of the Moon. Uh, These were basically just uh, very heavily engineered mirrors um, that people from the Earth could fire lasers at uh, in order to be able to determine the distance that the the moon is away from us, uh, plot its orbit, determine uh, how it's moving around in space. Um, and that resulted in uh, the discovery that the moon is actually moving away from us at about 3.8 centimetres per year. Um, so nothing that we would notice. Using these reflectors, it was possible to determine uh, the orbit of the Moon extremely accurately. And that is an important test of gravity, of course. Uh, And so far, every test that's been completed on the Moon, this uh, change in its orbit, the orbit over time, it agrees completely with Einstein's theory of relativity to the accuracy of the the experiment, which, to be fair, is down to a few millimetres. Um, Other tests of gravity uh, were completed on the moon as well. A slightly less rigorous one, uh, with uh, the hammer and feather experiment, very famously. The idea that was uh, suggested by uh, Galileo uh, all the way back in uh, the early 1600s, that gravity actually uh, works the same on all objects, and it's only the... Um, the air resistance, which is important when it determine to determine how fast an object falls through uh, uh, the atmosphere of the Earth. Of course, on the Moon with no atmosphere, you can drop two completely different objects, a hammer and a, a feather, and despite the fact that they weigh very different amounts, despite the fact they're clearly very different objects, they fall at exactly the same rate. Uh, and that's a, an important test of the, the universality of gravity, so that the idea that gravity is the same everywhere.
1: And I mean, if people haven't seen that, that that video is on YouTube. Absolutely. So it's certainly something to look at, especially if you're a science teacher yes. and you want to demonstrate a fantastic concept is to drop a hammer and feather in the classroom Yep. and then show the video and go explain.
0: Yes, absolutely. There were also some really less rigorous science experiments, which weren't really science experiments at all. Uh, One of the uh, Apollo astronauts actually took a golf club up with them. Or rather, they took the head of a golf club, um, which they attached to one of their scientific instruments, and played golf on the Moon, because they could.
1: And if I recall, it took... Two or three attempts for him to eventually hit the ball. I, I think. <laughs> I think the first two attempts were misses and then eventually it made connection and got and it going. Go yes.
0: It's not surprising. It's a tough enough sport as it is, but inside one of those bulky astron, uh, 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 space suits, it yeah. must have been very and difficult. And especially
1: considering that it's struggling with walking on the moon. Yes, Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> But one of the main things that astronauts did while on the surface of the moon was they took samples. Samples of moon rocks, moon dust, anything that they could find. And over the course of the six missions, they actually brought back quite a sizable quantity of moon rock. 380 kilos of the stuff. So over a third of a metric tonne. And these rocks are still studied today. Uh, there's a number of reasons why these rocks have been continuously studied for the past 50 years. Um, partly it's because techniques have improved. So any techniques which were completed early on, uh, in uh, shortly after the rocks came back, well, they can now be improved upon. We can get better results. Um, but also new techniques have been developed. But also because in reality that's almost the only lunar rock that we actually have to study. We have the 380 kilos that came from the Apollo astronauts. We also have... A couple of hundred grams that came from uh, sample return missions that were automated and these were um, Russian uh, missions that uh, took small samples and then delivered them back to the earth again Uh, but they were they those are the only sort of uncontaminated samples we do also have maybe another hundred or so kilos of uh, meteorites that have Uh, fallen from the moon effectively so something has smashed into the moon blown bits off out into space which have then eventually fallen back onto the surface of the earth and they've been collected in places like antarctica and in the the deserts of africa and that sort of thing the moon rock that came back from the apollo missions is by far the majority of the stuff that we actually have to study And the reasons that we want to study them in the first place are are quite wide-ranging as well. The most obvious one is to try to determine the moon's origin. The current most likely theory about the moon's formation is the uh, giant impact theory. This suggests that an object about the size of Mars smashed into the early Earth uh, threw loads of material out into space which then coalesced uh, due to its gravity into the moon that we see today. So in reality what the moon is made out of is in part what The Earth is currently made out of uh, because it came from the same place. It was blown off from the surface of the Earth. The impactor has been given the the name uh, Thea. Uh, As I say, it was about the size of Mars when it impacted. Uh, The impact occurred about 4.4 billion years ago. So only about 0.1 billion years or 100 million years after the formation of the solar system in the first place. And uh, what would have happened is the iron core of this Mars sized object uh, would have effectively molded uh, melded with the uh, the iron core of the earth so it enriched the amount of iron uh, on the earth um, but all of the the mantle the, the crust the, uh, the the silicates the the other materials would have been vaporized or uh, thrown off into space, and that is what would have made the Moon. This explains why the Moon is uh, almost devoid of iron. Uh, it has very little iron compared with the Earth. It's much less dense. So even for its size, it's very, very light. Very, It doesn't have much mass to it. Um, there are a number of reasons why this theory is thought to be the right one. Partly the iron core, uh, iron Uh, lack on the moon that I just just discussed, but also uh, from the alignment of the Earth's spin and the moon's orbit, which pretty much line up with one another, another good reason to believe it. Some of the reasons that we know or think that the the moon formed this way came from these lunar samples. The lunar samples show that the moon's surface was mostly molten at one point, which is another requirement of the theory, and certain uh, elements uh, in the universe so an an atom composed of uh, neutrons and protons uh, with then electrons whizzing around the outside Uh, the number of protons tells you what the chemical is what the element is Uh, hydrogen has one helium has two and so on and so on but the number of neutrons in an atom can change without changing the chemical properties. so it's still iron it's still oxygen it's still hydrogen if it has more neutrons it's is a heavier version of that element. We call that a different isotope. And you can compare the isotopes, the ratios of isotopes of oxygen, of iron, of various other things, on the moon and compare them with the Earth, and you find that the ratios are almost identical. And again, that suggests that the material uh, came from the same place. Now, that could be a suggestion that, of course, all of the material in the solar system came from roughly the same place, except that different parts of the solar system, different rocks, do have different isotope ratios. So this is more evidence that the moon rock is actually earth rock in reality studying the rocks from the surface of the moon also has a knock-on effect on the understanding of moon formation in general so the other moons in our solar system um, and the formation of the entire solar system and thereby extension other stellar systems out in the rest of the universe and the moon has a very inactive surface, it hasn't really been doing very much for several billion years which means it is a record of extremely old rocks in the solar system, where the surface of the Earth, because of plate tectonics, most of the surface is uh, recycled every few hundred million years or so. So it's quite rare to find very, very old rocks on the Earth. But on the Moon, very, very common. So you've got a record of everything that's happened to the Moon in that time, which also gives you an idea of what's happened in the solar system over that time. But it's also been hit by rocks from space throughout its entire life. This is where the craters and many of the other features on the surface of the moon come from. Um, But those uh, meteoroids are still there. So the uh, meteorites that have landed on the surface, these are still around. And that's actually where this story is. The largest sample that was taken from... uh, the, the moon landings, or at least one of the largest, uh, nicknamed Big Bertha, uh, is a ten kilo chunk of moon rock, and it, again, it's still being studied to this day by uh, Professor Alexander Nemchin uh, from Curtin's School of uh, Earths for Earths and Planetary Sciences, and they and his team were analysing a very small sample of this rock, only less than two grams of it, um, and they found uh, granite which might not sound particularly impressive because it's a very, very common rock here on Earth. It's all around us. Um, But it's not on the moon. It's actually really quite rare. Uh, Even stranger, they found samples of quartz, which again, very, very common on the Earth, but not on the moon. It's very, very unusual. They also found uh, zircons inside the sample. And these zircons can actually be uh, dated through the radioactive decay of uranium. As uranium decays, it decays into lead. Um, and the lead builds up at a rate dependent on how fast the uranium is decaying. And so if you compare the amount of lead in a sample from this zircon to the amount of uranium that's still left, radioactive stuff, uh, then you can find the age of it. And you discover that the sample is about four billion years old. So again, this is a, uh, a very, very old rock, which for the moon isn't unusual, because moon rocks tend to be very, very old. Um, but we don't think that this rock came from the moon. In fact, that's kind of the point. There's a reason why uh, you find granite on it, why you find quartz on it, and why you find zircons, which are very, very similar to those that you find on Earth. That's because we think this rock came from the Earth. What we think happened, or the scientists have suggested, is that the, there was an impact on the Earth sometime at least four billion years ago that blew off a lo- large chunks of the surface of the Earth. This happens all the time around the solar system, certainly happened in the early form- formation of the solar system when there were lots of rocks flying around and lots of impacts. What would have happened is some of these rocks would have actually then impacted onto the surface of the moon. And by pure chance, one of these rocks, Big Bertha, landed right next to the Apollo 14 landing site that would occur 4 billion years later. So you get a rock being blown away from uh, from the Earth, chucked into space, landing on the moon... Right next to where Apollo astronauts, four billion years later, would decide that that looks like a good sample, I'm going to pick that up and take that home. So it is a four billion year round trip from the Earth to the Moon and back again. That thing is fantastic. <laughs> it is
1: fantastic. And I mean, as much as someone could say, well, you know, you went all the way to the moon to bring back a piece of the earth. <laughs> it's a vital piece of the earth because, mm. as you point out, the earth's surface is constantly being um, changed due to all the activity. And if we want to know what it was like at that point,
0: well, Rock here we have a Absolutely. sample
1: of the earth. That, and that sample, as you point out, is pristine it will be untouched and we can get a fantastic idea of what the Earth was like. So, it, I mean, that's pretty cool, actually, yeah, to, to find a piece of the Earth on, on the Moon.
0: So that's it for our podcast this month. Two new stories for you to vote on uh, at ROG Astronomers. Please go onto our Twitter feed there and vote for your favourite. Uh, last month, Our two news stories were uh, the discovery of an exoplanet in the so-called Fulton Gap, a planet which is about one and a half times the size of the Earth, uh, detected by the Kepler space uh, satellite uh, and uh, noticed by citizen science. And uh, my story last month was finding impactors on the surface of the moon during the lunar eclipse. With 73% of the vote, I did actually win that one. So, uh, commiserations to you, Patricia. I'm sure your story this month will do considerably better. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Please do listen in next month for more from Look Up.